Let us pray together. Loving God, we give thanks for this day, for the joy of music, for children in our midst, for all the blessings of this life, and the ways we begin to focus on them. I pray that the words of our mouths and the meditations of all our hearts may be full of gratitude and acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You have to wonder about the people who first heard Jesus say these words. Did they walk away and just quickly stop worrying? (coughs) Did they flip a switch in their psyches, their souls, and figure it out? Many of them probably did not know where their next meal was coming from or have a warm, reliable place to lay their heads. By our standards, many of the people listening to Jesus on that day were living in the ancient equivalent of our contemporary two-thirds world, with plenty to worry about, easily crushed and discarded and displaced by those more powerful than themselves. I wonder who among them said, okay, great, I'll stop worrying, we'll just see what happens. I'll follow my own migratory patterns in the open sky and God will provide. Or I'll just stand here, beautiful and aromatic, like a lily in the field, and let the wind blow my fragrance around so everyone can appreciate it. It may be helpful for us to know that Jesus had made several pronouncements before this about wealth, about keeping treasure in heaven and not here on earth, about trying not to serve two masters, God and mammon, or wealth about not being too public about our displays of charity and giving, and perhaps more importantly, about knowing how to pray properly. He's trying, here in the Sermon on the Mount, to encourage people to focus on the right things, not the wrong things, the kingdom of heaven kind of things, not the tethered to earth, bog you down kind of things. But for some of us, this passage on do not worry is irksome. One friend of mine, a self-avowed worrier and a preacher, admits that she doesn't like non-worriers. Rather than admire them, they annoy her. She suspects that they don't worry because they either have others around them taking care of everything for them, or they really do not understand what is going on. She herself tries to fake it until she makes it. She plays a calm person, a calm parish priest, and she has occasional success. But even then, she's really not that successful because as she puts it, when I'm not worrying, I get annoyed by people who are worrying because I start to suspect that I'm not worrying because I really do not understand what is going on. (laughs) She's terrible at following this teaching. A few years ago, as she got ready to preach on this text, she was visiting the day before with a member of her parish who was in her last days infirm. And the member of her church said, how long could she visit? And my friend said, not long, unfortunately, I need to work on my sermon for tomorrow. And her parishioner said, the best sermons are the ones that aren't finished until the last minute. To which my friend groaned. She then asked her, what is the text for tomorrow? And she told her about this text on not worrying from Matthew. And her parishioner thought for a moment, and then she said, okay, I'll go first. We'll work together on it. 
And she said, here's what my first thought is. I woke up this morning trembling with fear, sure that today would be the day that death would get me. After a pause, she turned to my friend and said, now it's your turn. <laughs> Sometimes it's helpful to have a little perspective on the things we worry about. Another preacher said she wants to argue for the whole worried world when she hears this. Yes, but. Yes, that is a lovely passage, and I really do believe it on some level. But birds do not have bills to pay, and lilies do not get arrested for loitering, and the grass of the field does not have three children under five to feed and diaper. Yes, God will provide, but meanwhile, there are people sleeping between cardboard sheets and eating out of garbage cans who seem to have fallen between the cracks in this passage. This particular preacher does <coughs> worry about the growing number of people in the country who have nowhere to call home, about the re revolution that has to take place before that trend will reverse itself and about how any of us can know all of that information and still enjoy our own homes. You see, we human beings are worriers by our nature. It is hardwired into who we are. Neuroscientists are arguing quite persuasively that we have the same sort of worry mechanism that all other animals happen to have, we scan the horizon constantly for threats and predators and things that may come and get us, and we perseverate and we worry. It's just part of who we are. And actually, to not worry is a much harder task for a human being than to worry. As one neuroscientist puts it, our brains are like Velcro for negative feelings and emotions and like Teflon for positive ones. We can't stop worrying just as we can't stop craving certain things or stop sneezing or stop wanting. I'm sure we could stand to worry more about a few things like gun safety or what we're doing about the environment or a system that locks up more and more of our people behind bars or the reach and terror of groups like ISIS and what we need to do to stop it. I think you and I probably actually hope that people at the National Security Council have some well-placed worry about the thugs and infectious despots of the world. Or we hope that the good people at the Center for Disease Control are keeping their eyes focused on the horizon for the next epidemic or health crisis that may come our way. And you and I worry that we'll have enough saved for retirement that we'll be able to withstand destabilizing illness, that our children will grow up whole and healthy. Sometimes worry is what gets us to get things done. And some of us are really good at it. It's a regular process. It's the engine chugging away inside our minds and hearts, propelling us forward, keeping us on task, clicking at our heels to keep going. I found myself wondering, how a Syrian refugee might respond to this passage, or a homeless person. I have a friend who's homeless who shares a coffee shop with me and comes in every morning with his large garbage bag of his stuff, and he spends a little more time than everyone else in the bathroom getting ready for the day. Occasionally he and I have a cup of tea, or occasionally I've had the privilege of getting him some new shoes. I've offered to help him move to a warmer place because he hates the winter, but he won't leave. I sat down with him yesterday with this passage and asked him what he thought. 
And he said, I like your take on it. We shouldn't worry. I don't worry about food or clothing. I worry about my loved ones, my mother back in Scotland, or the people I love and care about. It shocked me, his nonchalance, as I started to shiver in the cold next to him as we sat on the granite curb as the icy fingers wove their way through Harvard Square, and I couldn't wait to get home to my warm place. I have to confess that unlike my colleagues, I have actually always loved this passage. When I've been most consumed by worry, I've often turned to it and found comfort in the poetic pastoral landscape that Jesus describes. I've recommended it to people in the hospital for whom the stakes have just gotten frighteningly high. And as I listen to my colleagues, I wonder if perhaps that's been pastorally insensitive or even inappropriate at times. But for me, this passage works. And occasionally, I will observe the birds flying overhead, or the seals and whales swimming off of Cape Cod, or the squirrels collecting acorns, or the blades of tall grass tossing in the wind, and I wonder, what must it be like to be them? To spend your day swimming and darting about in the ocean, or building nests in trees, or following your own impulses to go south toward warmer weather. The fact is, a lot of them, especially the squirrels and birds, seem quite nervous, twitching and turning, watching us human with wary eyes, fleeing at the slightest movement. And I think, no, I don't want to be like them. But then again, I've sat in outdoor cafes and urban parks and found that some of these creatures have gotten used to people feeding them, and they've gotten kind of annoying and pesty. Squirrels lurking around the park bench expectant <laughs> and entitled, or finches hopping on your table demanding a crumb. And I think, well, they seem to have overcome their innate fear and nervous worry. I should be able to as well. I like what Billy Collins says about his dog. The way the dog trots out the front door every morning without a hat or an umbrella, without any money, or the keys to her doghouse, never fails to fill the saucer of my heart with milky admiration. Who provides a finer example of life without encumbrance? Thoreau in his curtainless hut with a single plate, a single spoon, Gandhi with his staff and holy diapers, off she goes into the material world with nothing but her brown coat and her modest blue collar. Following only her wet nose, the twin portals of her steady breathing followed only by the plume of her tail. But there's the flip side. If only she did not shove the cat aside every morning and eat all of his food, what a model of self-containment she would be. What a paragon of earthly detachment. If only she were not so eager for a rub behind the ears, so acrobatic in her welcomes. If only I were not her god. And that's just it, right? Who is our god? Is it wealth or education or status or recognition or finding an elusive love? Since moving back to the East Coast, I remain convinced that one of our chief afflictions here is anxiety. We are often needlessly edgy, nervous, worried in our traffic, our road rage, 
our interactions with one another, in our rush and our hurry, everything often seems so darn urgent. And in truth, how many of us have ever added a single hour to our span of life by worrying? If anything, we've subtracted precious hours after hours by needlessly doing so. In my last church, I had a very strong and spiritual woman who used to tell me repeatedly that worry is a prayer for what you don't want to happen. This meant all the more to us because she spent the better part of her life combating cancer in one form or another, about three decades worth. Her life had more than its fair share of doctors, appointments, radiation, chemotherapy, injections, hair loss, weight loss, and remissions. And yet she somehow taught herself to worry less, to contain it and shrink it, to figure out how to craft days to explore her creativity with friends, to create passive income streams that would sustain her when she was sick, to cultivate and maintain a wide circle of friends. Ultimately, cancer, the thing she had the cause to worry about, took over her body. But it didn't take over her spirit which was one of a well-cultivated, non-anxious presence. When I was at her deathbed, I gave my own version of last rites and thanked God for the presence of her life among us. And she rose up out of her morphine haze and said, I'm still here. <laughs> what Jesus is saying, I think, is that there's something deeper, wider, and stronger than any of our worry. And we, in our comings and goings, and the relative smallness of our everyday lives, too often forget this deeper current of God. If you spend any time with poor people or incarcerated people or people who live at the edge of life, you'll understand that gratitude often outweighs worry. So I wonder if we could use this innate ability to scan the horizon and turn it into some sort of alertness to active contemplation, contemplation that leads us to take right action. I wonder if maybe as a new discipline, we might regularly take stock of what worries us, what keeps us up at night, perhaps even list our worries regularly on scraps of paper to render them slightly more impotent. And for each worry, do what neuroscientists and positive psychologists encourage us to do, which is for each worry, write two gratitudes. Two things we love. Two things that have helped us before, are helping us now, or might help us in the future. Things that make our hearts sing. If we have trouble coming up with these things, we've got a lot more work to do on combating worry. Consider the lilies of the field. They neither toil nor spin. And yet Solomon, in all his splendor, was not robed like one of these. Let us sink down into a deeper well, a well in which the love of God abides always and is ready for our thirsty souls. And let us give thanks early and often. Amen.